1: right rug flooring.
2: Hey everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude Tanneritos. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.
3: This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing.
4: Whatever it is, whatever you do, you're our daughter, and I will love you.
3: John Robin Bates has a new play on Broadway, recently nominated for a Tony, Other Desert Cities, is about family, dysfunction, and the choices we make
0: consequences to our actions what does that mean how
4: could i trust you how could i ever be in your presence
3: my dear robbie as he's known to many pursued similar themes in the drama he created and executive produced for abc brothers and sisters robbie's strengths as a playwright are magnified by the talent he surrounds himself with Dan Sullivan directed Substance of Fire in 1992. Joe Mantello directed Other Desert Cities. Robbie Bates often writes for specific actors he admires, like Stacey Keach and Ron Rifkin, who have worked on several of Robbie's stage and screen projects. In the theater world, you'd be hard-pressed to find someone who wouldn't want to work with Robbie. He comes across as kind, human, and humble, during our conversation, he confessed there's been a dark side to his success on Broadway. He's been spoiled. John Robin Bates can barely think about going back to the smaller theaters. I'm ruined. I'm ruined for off-Broadway. Now, I may, I sort of
4: say things like, well, that play's an off-Broadway play. It's not a Broadway play. I'm making fun of myself. The difference is, you know, you're in this great, great grand old house, you know, that's built for a kind of... Big experience and the drama is somehow expanded. I mean, I, I listen. I never knew
3: the difference, so I was always. And out. when you're there, you feel there's a just a different tapestry there when you're in a Broadway house that lends itself to the kind of the import of the project. Or? There,
4: there, there's a lot of different things going on. You know, the audience has bought into an experience for which they've usually, sadly, paid more money, mm-hmm. and so it changes the dynamic. It changes. There's more ornamentation around it in some way. The laughs change, which is odd. The laughs are sort of
3: bigger and and more e- expensive in some. So, way. what was the arc of other desert cities before you went to Broadway? It began where in in the Mitzi Newhouse, which is
4: the beautiful jewel theater in the basement of Lincoln Center. How many seats? Two ninety nine. Right. I think small, small, intimate, and in fact even claustrophobic. What happened was Joe Mantello, who directed it, immediately had a sense of of having to build space around things, and that when once it moved in the transfer, I actually believe the play got better in its move. It just all came together in some way. I did a little work on the play, and for example, what work did you do? I worked a little
3: bit on the ending of the play, the last few minutes of the play. Uh, But it went so well off-Broadway at Lincoln Center. When you do that kind of thing, what is it that propels you to do that? It's just the knowledge that there's more to mine from it.
4: And mostly it was, you know, Joe's great sort of probing sense of, I think there's a deeper truth there. I think we've glossed over something or skipped over
3: something. You have a success now on Broadway that if I'm, I I could be mistaken, but it's been a while since you had it to this level. This is like substance of fire again, (laughs) you know, where you had great, great notices and people have said wonderful things about your career and your future. That was 20 years ago. I know. When you look back on some of your plays, would you change them? I can't. I just have to keep moving forward. I, I can't do it. I know that people do,
4: but, you know, I can't fight old wars. I would find it disablingly backwards-looking for myself to go back. I think some of my plays have been uh, less successful to me than others. And to me, it's all been about the process of getting to the next play or getting to the next day. This play, though, at the core of it, it comes out of trying to understand the ways in which people collapse, even though the subject is
3: not necessarily depression. Uh I want to take two plays, Substance of Fire, uh, Sullivan directed, and now you're on Broadway and had been at the Mitzi with other desert cities, and Joe directed. Compare and contrast Sullivan with Joe in terms of their directing techniques. They're very similar.
4: Yeah. They are meticulous meticulous miniaturists with big expansive visions of w- what logic and a world are comprised of they're both indefatigable they never give up they live and breathe it their approaches are very different dan has a kind of almost holistic view of of the logic of a play And Joe, because, I don't know, maybe because he was an actor for a long time, even though Dan had been an actor, Joe looks for a different kind of character logic. He's always asking, and what happens next, dramaturgically? He's very much about the engine and the motor. And Dan is... Well he's also actually he's actually all they're they're so similar that in, it's only a matter of their temperaments that are
3: different. How are they different? Dan is like a priest. Yeah, he's more <laughs> Jesuitical. Yeah. And Mantello was what? Uh to the extent
4: that you want to say. He's passionately passionately dedicated to leaving no stone unturned and I think one of the reasons he went Back to acting this last year did The Normal Heart on Broadway and I think it's because he had to re-experience the, the sort of dynamic of what it means to be an actor to get under the skin of the experience and find out what kind of communicator he is with actors by acting again. Mm-hmm. Dan has a a kind of remove about him mm-hmm. and Joe tends to delve uh, sort of with sword kind of play, deep into the play. Yeah. What they both have in common is real rigor about their work ethic and their intellectual
3: understanding of a subject, of a world. Sometimes, although it's not always useful, I divide directors between directors that you want to please because you want them to like you. And directors that you want to please, because you don't want them to hate you. <laughs> and I don't think I need to tell you which one would be which in this case, you know, because Joe seems so intense. He just seems so well, smoldering all the time. Well, he is he, he?
4: No, he wants you to show him. He doesn't want to have to tell you what to do. He wants you to bring something amazing to the table every day. It's why one loves, for instance, our mutual friend Nathan. Nathan Lane, because every day
3: he brings something new, what they call a money player. Many people, I think, don't understand, and this is not always the case, that the theatrical experience, movies are very, very different. When you work with a director in the theater, a lot of them don't tell you this or that. They edit. You know, the most famous example, who I love, is Joey Tillinger, who Tillinger basically says nothing for the, for the three weeks And then in the last week, he selects. Mm -hmm. My recollection of Joey was, it was three weeks of me doing something, I'd say, what do you think? And he'd say, what do you think, David? Do you think it works?
4: (laughs) I, I just, I can't do it that way. I see it as all about stripping away and finding the kind of improvisatory freedom that's locked in the text. And that involves a combination of Savviness and analysis and getting off book really fast and being able to move around really fast
3: and then setting Joe, up. Joe, I'm told, is a stickler for that. Get off book.
4: Well, you Zags,
3: can't. Because nothing really happens until you do. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's difficult. Well, especially in a world now where, as I recall, you used to have five weeks of rehearsal for a, a straight play. We've gone to a four-week rehearsal. Four weeks that goes by like like you sneeze. I like shorter rehearsals with
4: Bob Falls, another great director. I did three hotels this last summer at Williamstown with Maura Tierney and Stephen Weber, and they had two and a half weeks.
3: Everything is dangerous. At two and a half weeks. Uh-huh. Tell me about when uh, a play like *Substance of Fire*. How did that come to you?
4: You know, it's interesting because that play and this play share something in common. They came out of despair. They both came out of of trying to write myself out of a kind of real sense of
3: despondency and loss. And to the extent you want to talk about it, what was the despondency back in 91?
4: I had been working on a play for a long time that was, eventually became a A play called *A Fair Country*, but at the time it was called *Dutch Landscape*, and I worked on it. Impossible play to do when you're young about growing up. Did it at the Taper in Los Angeles, and I lost the play. I actually lost it, you know, in rehearsal and development, through nobody's fault. You know, certainly not Gordon Davidson's who directed it. If if anybody was at fault, if you can even use that word, because it's it's theater, it was me. I was just in despair over. How did I let this happen to me? I uh, used to work at Book Soup in uh, Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> and I borrowed the office above Book Soup to try and figure out, you know, I was no longer working there. So I was sitting up in this office above the store, and I was surrounded by books. And I thought, oh, yeah, I've read all of you. I've read you, 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 you. And none of you did me any good whatsoever whatsoever. I don't know how to fight. First line of Substance of Fire is, look at all these books. The play is about learning how to fight and articulating the things you need, articulating the ways in which you have to express yourself in order to somehow achieve a kind of victory that goes beyond words. What's Isaac's victory? Isaac doesn't really have a victory in an odd kind of way. He goes down with his own ship, but he's unyielding. And I think I tried to learn how to be unyielding in writing that play. It didn't do me much good. Why? Well, because life is life and plays are plays, and you can't actually learn that much by
3: writing them. You have to live. Do you find that in the ensuing years you wind up going up against things? that just crush you. Totally. Right, they crush you, and you you. realize that, I'm not going to compare battles with television networks with going through the Holocaust, but on the other hand, the Isaac character, there are some people who, they are just incapable of the happiness that leads to real intimacy because there's something that they just cannot get over.
4: I think it's very true. Totally true, that character. And in his case, he has very little choice. He's locked in battle with this melancholia that won't
3: lift. Which I think people don't have a real honest understanding about. They don't know what it's like to be betrayed on like the ninth level, you know, something really hideous.
4: I think despair is... The dimensions of, of one's despair are so difficult to quantify, so difficult to paint, so difficult to expose. And it's such a huge subject. Certainly... Other Desert Cities is steeped in despair. You know, you say, talk about network battles, but I had, I sort of, you know, was ejected from my one adventure in television up to that point. I was creating Brothers and Sisters, and it was a very unhappy, very difficult experience for me. And again, at the end of that thing, I sort of, I came back east you know, after having been west for a little bit. And what was the first thing you wrote after that? Well, there are three plays in my drawer because I I I had forgotten how to write. That This is the thing I, I think about with other desert cities is it's the play where I learned... I taught myself how to write again because I was so used to
3: writing to please people. What happened with ABC?
4: Well, first of all, networks being what they are, the people who... Commission the piece and who are invested in putting it on the air, end up leaving. Sure. and so you're left with a kind of in a kind of step parents, uh, and not necessarily particularly caring, supportive step parents. slightly bewildered. I mean, the, the, the guy who really ran the entertainment division kept saying, "I, I don't understand why anybody watches this show." And I That's would painful. say the same thing, except for different reasons. I mean, it was really, it was bizarre. Uh, but how he would call to- me and scream at me. I actually said to him, I, I don't know who you think you're talking to. Yeah. And I would, you know, politely hang up and say, I'm, I'm leaving the conversation now. I, at one point I said to them, don't you feel like there's something wrong? I mean, look at this amazing cast. Sally Field, Callista Flockhart... Rachel Griffith, Ron Rifkin, Patty Wedig, on and on and on. Don't you think there should be some higher intention, some integrity, maybe some, I don't know, do you, want, do you want to try and get an Emmy or something? I didn't even know how to speak their language, but I thought Emmy would be something that they would recognize. And uh, a literal quote from the head of the studio was,
3: no, I don't need awards. The ratings are good enough for me. This happens in the first season. This yeah. is the First season. Yeah. And you are gone after how many seasons? After the first season? Oh yeah. So was so all this takes place in one television season? Yes. Yeah. One nine-month period. Yes. Hard to believe. You it.
4: know, someone comes in to sort of manage the show, and they're beholden to the network and the studio as they should be. And I'm beholden to an aesthetic, and I'm an idiot for being beholden to an aesthetic.
3: But, you know, people love the show. It
4: went on for another four seasons after that. And you
3: maintained some participation in the show, yes? No, no, no. How was that possible? You created the show. You were the creator of the show, correct? There was a writer's strike and uh,
4: there was a force majeure clause. Force majeure being act of God. The studio network could use that clause to nullify any contract they had with anybody they liked. I had been very vocal during that strike about what I considered at the time the very unhealthy dynamic between the producers and the Writers Guild. And I wrote about this way too much.
3: What was was the name of those uh, blogs you wrote
4: on Huffington Post? Leaving L.A.? Leaving, yeah. A lot of them were very insanely painful and actually lead to, again, other desert cities the girl in the play can't stop writing about things that affected other people right and she wants some truth yeah and then she's left with the debris so it all came out of i you know i pick up the phone one day and i see that you know people's deals are being canceled but they're people who haven't made anything and i i suddenly i'm i was gone and i even before that wasn't sure to what extent I was ever going
3: to go back. I knew I would have some involvement, but then I had none whatsoever. But for me, what's curious, and again, you don't have to answer this question, I'm just curious, which is, as the creator of a television show, there is typically a windfall for that person as the creator of that show. If that was taken away from you or through some contractual sleight of hand, where did all that go? All went to the network? They took it all for themselves? I can't speak to that. I'm just not going to talk about that. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. I don't
4: <laughs> But I, I am going to say that I think it was was the best thing that ever happened to me because it would have been dirty money. I think it would have destroyed me in some way. To have no pride in the thing that made me wealthy would have made me terribly uncomfortable and I would have felt that I'd betrayed whatever promise or potential I'd set up for myself as a writer. That if I was going to survive at it, it couldn't be
3: compromised. This is Alec Baldwin, and I'm talking with playwright John Robin Bates. More in a minute.
1: Right Rug Flooring.
3: This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. The idea for John Robin Bates's new play, Other Desert Cities, came to him when he was back on the East Coast. I was sitting
4: at a beach with my notebook, and I'm thinking about how to get back into it and what what matters to me, and... I had just sort of self-destructed at Brothers and Sisters. I had written about personal events that implicated other people in some way that I hadn't taken into account the consequences. And I found myself very much like the character in, in my play, played by Beth Marvel and Rachel Griffith at various points, a writer who is a dangerous creature. And I had a note to myself, play about daughter of a famous family who writes a book about her growing up in this family, something like that, the danger of telling the truth that turns out to be a lie. And at that moment, this lady of a certain age walked by me and she looked to me like um, Pat Buckley the old doyenne of New York conservative politics, the wife of... uh, Bill Buckley. Bill Buckley. And I'd had lunch with her once and found her to be charming and engaged. And this woman walked by me on this beach with her hat and in a one-piece bathing suit. I immediately felt the mother in that play. And I suddenly remembered old California the way it was when I was a kid and... We were just in the throes of an election at the time, too, or about to be. And the Republicans of certainly of that period and even more so today were very confusing to me because they didn't seem recognizable to me as having a coherent, cohesive, cogent argument for their principled positions, which had to be principled in some way. The play just came together in one fell swoop. Old California, conservatives, yeah. the old Hollywood Reaganites. system, Reaganites. I, I even remembered I'd gone to high school with, I think, the daughter of John Gavin. And I thought, you know, and because I love Touch of Evil, and there, I think, isn't John Gavin? No, he's not in Touch of Evil. He's in he's a Psycho. He's in all these movies, and I thought about— He was the ambassador to Mexico. That's right, as is the Stacey Keach character in my play. And I thought about— <laughs> 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 Your character's based on John Gavin. To some extent, there are all these archetypes in it. I hear you. I love it. At the back of all this, of course, there's also Joe Mantello, who, you know, we're no longer a couple, but he's my family, my best friend. And you ceased
3: being a couple what year?
4: 2002. So it was a while. And he kept saying to me, with all possible respect, nobody's waiting for the next Robbie Bates play. And, you know, these are chilling words because i have so much to say
3: and it's not coming out my equivalent of that is my agent said to me he goes it's not that these people don't want to hire you because they don't like you he says they don't want to hire you because they don't think of you at all jesus i thought wow well it's terrible because the worst
4: thing that can happen to an artist i'm invisible sure i no longer matter Hmm. for me writing plays has always been very tricky I don't know a lot. I don't have a lot to say. I reach things very slowly and I – I sometimes it seems facile and easy and to me sometimes my thoughts and my sort of expressed opinions in plays seem hollow or naive even. Why?
3: Because I know there are deeper truths always to be found and that I'm – But don't you think that seeking them and being aware of that makes you – more likely to find it than anybody else? You didn't go to college, did you?
4: No, I Why? didn't. Why?
3: You wound up educating yourself. I
4: wish I had gone to college. Why was, didn't you? I was a depressed and unsettled kid. and Why? I don't... I think I wasn't at peace with probably any element of who I was, whether it was a sort of nascent intellectual or sort of pre-expressive homosexual kid,
3: or... You grew
4: up where? Variously, L.A. You were born where? In L.A. And
3: you lived there till you were how old?
4: Seven, then Brazil for three years in Rio, and then uh, South Africa for six and a half years till I was 18.
3: And your father was in the condensed milk business? My
4: father worked for a giant multinational,
3: Carnation Milk, Yeah, yeah. It was a condensed milk business. So L.A., Brazil, uh, South Africa. And then back to L.A. Back to L.A. And when you finally get back to L.A., how old are you?
4: Eighteen. So high school is over. I just finished high school. I'd sort of lost time through all the travel. What
3: was a- high school in South Africa like?
4: I couldn't get used to things like cricket and corporal punishment. You know, you'd get caned for, like, not doing well on a spelling test. Literally caned. And I think, actually, I was so busy trying to be sly and charming that I forgot how to be me, that I think led me to rebel against learning itself. So I was sort of interested in the few things I was interested in, literature, history. But I wouldn't apply myself to anything except escape. And part of escape meant not going to college. I was really lonely and I, I kind of became a depressed kid.
3: And, how did that um, manifest itself, if you can say? I I think I— Did you know you were gay then? Yes, I definitely knew that. I knew— Did that add to your depression? Did it make you feel more isolated in the environment you lived in? Because it it wasn't proactive, the gay community there. In 1973. (laughs) Talk about getting caned. Yeah, well,
4: um, I think my parents, who loved me very much, were distracted by their own terrors. There are certain families that are born in terror and live in terror.
3: Um, Conceived in terror. I need you to write a play for me. I want it to be called yeah. Conceived in Terror. <laughs> Baby, go ahead.
4: Well, no. I mean, Death of a Salesman is, is a family that lives in terror. Right. You were how old when you arrived in Durban?
3: Ten. So you were there eight years yeah, I was there almost eight years. The critical ago. time, 10 years. Old, so all of your real the back half of your childhood, your teenage years especially, you are in Durban. Yes, I, I was 17 or something when we left. But you had finished the high school program.
4: No, no, I finished it in L.A. You did, where? Yeah, Beverly Hills High now, School. Now, what was that like? I, you know, was the only kid I knew who rode their bike to school because everybody else's parents had given them a Fiat.
3: Literally. Yeah. Or something. Who were your friends then? Who did you become friends with, anyone? Oh,
4: yeah. In fact, Jenny Livingston went on to make uh, Paris is Burning, great documentary. Tina Landau, a great theater director. Gina Gershon, my oldest friend from high school. We were in plays together in the drama department. So I became friends with, and I say this with real respect and love, with fellow freaks.
3: How were you feeling about yourself and about life that last year in Beverly Hills?
4: I think I was scared to death still. I mean, it was just a new form of foreignness, but it had the pattern of something very familiar to me. But, you know, I remember being taken to a party really early on, and I had developed a kind of weird eye beforehand for art. I thought maybe I was going to be a painter or an art historian or something. And I walk into this house, and there is a giant David Hockney, and next to it is a giant mother well. I'm standing in front of this giant painting that's famous that I've looked at in books, Thames and Hudson art books, while I was in Durban at the art library of the university. I don't know, the world was just very real and different, and it was easier to, like, have sex, and it was easier to to function. Were you writing? I guess I was sort of writing, yeah.
3: What were you writing? <sighs>
4: I was writing really bad short stories about alienated Paul Bowles kids adrift in foreign countries, which is basically, to tell you the truth, still what I'm doing. It just looks (laughs) slightly—the wallpaper's prettier now.
3: Where were you living at that age? I was living um,
4: on friends' sofas, like the parents of children I went to high school with. You were the beloved
3: house guest.
4: I was. I was just this freak, you know, and I was at odds with my family at the time, you know, and I had escaped, and
3: it was just a nightmare. How do we get from there to Fair Country, Gordon Davidson? You know, in Pinocchio, where he falls in with
4: actors, Mm -hmm. I'm walking around... I ran into this girl I, I knew from high school. She said, what are you doing? And I, I'm sort of looking for a job. I think I'm starving to death. I'm not sure. She said to me, and I should have known, she said, well, my father just fired me. He needs a new, <laughs> a new
3: assistant.
4: <laughs> <laughs> he and? needs a new assistant. And I was like, well, what does he do? And she said, oh, he's a film producer.
3: Who was the film producer? It's this great guy. And he... It, <laughs> Was he a working producer? I'm only asking for a name to make so
4: it So I thought. My first day at the office, he, he says to me, whatever you do, answer the phones, but never pick up the phone. And I was like, I don't even know what that means. And he said, you'll do fine. And he had a gang of cronies, all of whom had contempt for the studio system and had worked around the edges of it or in it, had done well, fallen out of favor, usually had destroyed themselves through my favorite thing, their own ambivalence. I found myself at home for the first time in my <laughs> life. <laughs> with a nest of scorpions. Yes, did. I did. I found myself. I said, this I know. Yeah, because nobody is trying to pass. Yeah. It's a den of thieves. Yeah, we're a hitting the life. ball here. It was still the days of speakerphone. And they would have fights. They had a tower on Sunset Boulevard. They had a nest of rooms in a tower. And they would be fighting with each other. And then there would suddenly be a pause. Someone would say, Jeez, if you could see what I see right now, that girl walking down Sunset, she is so beautiful. The fight was over. Yeah, yeah. Nothing meant anything. The narcotic of sex. That's right. One of them asked for a glass of water. This is my first few weeks there. Nineteen eighty-two. What do I know? I <laughs> would go to the sink, bring a glass of water, would spit it out like practically on me, and say, "This isn't water." And I would say, "Yes, it's water. What are you talking about? That's water." They say, "I want professional water." And the whole time became about professional water.
3: How long did that last? Two, three, four, five. Like f- uh, four some years. No. no. No, but it got... You were in the scorpion's nest looking down at the women's asses for four years? And I would copy everything down.
4: And so at the same time I started hanging around with these actors, uh, there was a sort of... uh, an equally desperate contingent of avant-gardist odd playwrights out there in L.A. living on the fringes of everything. And so I lived between these two worlds, one of which was sort of drunk and druggy, and the other was insane, megalomaniacal, oh, I
3: can't say the word. Megalomaniacal. Thank you. Megal- what I'm here for. Megalomaniacal. You just think of the words and I'll say them. Thank you. We go. We're going to beam each other. Go ahead. I <clears> know <throat> uh, it's like Bluetooth without <laughs> the technology. Bluetooth me. Go ahead. I had to come up with a
4: play for one of these sort of workshop things that we would put together. And one of these playwrights said to me, so what's your play? And- me, bullshitting, which is something I just did, I said, yeah, it's called maslansky zelensky On the spot. I just came up with the name. Based on those guys? Yeah. I said, yeah, it's called maslansky zelensky You just, based
3: it on the guys in the tower? Said, it's
4: just them talking. And I put all my notes together, and we did
3: it. And That was the first one you wrote? Yeah. Now you're on Broadway. The show's a big success. People have said wonderful things about the show. I worship Stacey. I mean, I worship. He's a, he's, he is he's one of the great wild mustangs of of all theater history. And in this piece, it is that Reagan crowd. It is that Bush crowd. It is that blue blood Republican crowd. conservative crowd. Stacy captures that. Compl- I wrote he the part does. for him. You you wrote the part for oh, him. Oh yeah, I knew that there was nobody
4: who could capture that better ever. We'd worked together
3: before. He'd done 10 unknowns at the taper, and it was a revelation. Because the character has to have a dignity as well. Yeah. Stacy brings in a guy We sit there and go, I get it. I would have followed him. I wanted him around. He's great, and I love him
4: so much. You know, he and Joe didn't know each other, and so they got on the phone before rehearsal, and Stacy says to Joe, you know, i I've worked with Robbie before. We've worked together before, I, and I and I know him well. And do you do you know him? Have you w- worked with him? And how how well do you know him? And Joe says, "I kind of know him." we lived together for twelve years. <laughs> but that's Stacy kind of know. He's like, "Oh, damn!" The great thing about Stacy is he brings centuries of actors' honor onto that stage with him, the honor of honoring fellow actors, the honor of listening, the privilege of being an actor, the privilege of being in the theater, not missing a single show in his 70s, the rituals of it, the privilege of working in the theater is the thing that has been, of everything that's happened to me, just the great, honor of being in the American theater in some capacity is what I'm left with, that it's a privilege to
3: be in it. I'm lucky to have found my way back to it. What's institutionalized in working in the theater is a hunt for truth. Totally. That doesn't exist in the movie business and the television business. No. Do you know what you're doing next? Are you on to something now that you're writing?
4: Who knows? I can't tell yet. You can't? I just can't tell. You're scribbling. Yeah. You're scribbling. I'm supposed to be doing things. I'm a mess at all times.
3: John Robin Bates says he feels like more of a grown-up as of late. When he started out in LA, he was couch surfing at the homes of his friends' parents. Things are different now. I have a home, I grow stuff, I'm responsible to people. You have a dog? I have a dog. He has three. What's l- the dog's name? Trip trip yeah he has three legs he's a great dog this is alec baldwin and you're listening to here's the thing